Hi, everyone. Welcome to the A Life of Education podcast. Today, we're here with, obviously, Keith and Oliver. Yep, Oliver Blankensop, over from the UK. Um, You are the program director for the MSc in Sport Rehabilitation at St. Mary's University, Twickenham. Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, spot on. And that is the course that you and I both sat together at undergraduate level a long time ago. And now you have found your way to the head of the the top of the pile. Somehow, yeah. Yeah. Made my way all the way back. Yep. Um, So do you want to just sort of get a little bit of background of where you grew up and obviously we were both in university together back in the old days and then how you ended up sitting here beside us yeah sure thing so i well as you've already alluded to went to st mary's university for my undergrad in sport rehabilitation um i was very fortunate during my years there to go on placement to the states and experience the collegiate system um so after graduation i decided to pursue a master's in athletic training over in america so i went to south dakota state to do my master's there <laughs> no, yeah, carry on. No, no, sorry. Um, sorry. Yeah, no, sorry. To get you back in camera shot. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I did my masters at South Dakota State in athletic training, um, and I was fortunate enough to work with the uh, women's soccer team for a lot of my time there, and also experienced some other collegiate sports such as wrestling, American football, um, which was a really good eye opener for me clinically uh, to see those different populations. Um, and then after that, I was fortunate enough to get a job in the MLS as an athletic trainer, assistant athletic trainer for the uh, Seattle Sounders. The MLS is the major league soccer. major league soccer yeah so it's like their premier league of, of oh, america wow. yeah so i worked there for two seasons um they were very successful during that time so it was quite fortunate again to see some of that success and experience that um, and work with some really good um practitioners over there um, and that was a really good experience for me and then obviously now i've moved back to the uk um, where i'm now course director or program director for the masters in sport rehabilitation so kind of come full circle in some respects to uh, end up where i started off but um yeah it's been really good so oliver is uh well we're very lucky to have you and to do a course for a life of education and your course is centering around rehabilitation so what are some of the things that people are going to learn by doing your course yeah, so essentially it's going to be a an introduction to some musculoskeletal injuries and kind of the processes that we go through to to kind of guide our thought processes for the rehab. Um, so what we'll do is we'll start off by, or what I have done is start off by speaking a lot about kind of pain. So there's an introductory lecture on pain and, and we don't go as deep as we could do into the pain side of things, but we kind of touch on the tip of the iceberg of, of pain and how pain can affect the body and affect the rehabilitation process. Um, it's an area that I've started to develop an interest in or a stronger interest in. So what we do is we, we recap that. So we go into pain, we talk about how it can affect the person, uh, the physiology of the human as well. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll, we'll focus around three main areas. So we're going to go into ligamentous, tendons and muscle injuries, um, give a brief overview of what occurs during that. And then talk about some of the thought processes and research kind of led processes behind the rehabilitation of those injuries. Um, so it takes a very much an evidence-based practice approach uh, for the learner. Um, and hopefully by the end of it, people will get a really good idea of the direction that they want to head in, in terms of rehabbing some of those, some of those injuries. And we try to give as many case studies where appropriate. Um, it, it's never going to cover the whole spectrum of everything that there is. But I hope that at the end of it, the, uh, the the reader or the listener will get a really good idea about about the processes that they need to follow, and hopefully there'll be a clear structure that they can they can guide themselves with. 
Yeah, I mean, we spoke over dinner last night. You're, we kind of the differences. Um, the difference is that we're not trying to tell people exactly what to do on this linear sense. It's more just giving them an understanding of the process of healing for different tissues and then enabling them to uh, create their own sort of programs from there. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many ways to skin a cat, right? So I think if you have the underlying knowledge of what's going on from a tissue level, from a person's um, beliefs and kind of looking at the biopsychosocial model if you kind of can incorporate all of those into your rehab um, and you understand fully the movements required um, to stress the tissue to help it heal then I think there's too many exercises and too many different ways to go around treating it so I think we kind of hopefully give the, the listener a really good idea about what it is they need to achieve but how they achieve that is kind of up to them because people will take so many different routes and again it's so specific on who you're treating um, which population you have so mm-hmm. yeah it's kind of without going down one specific route it's it's just leading them in the right direction and then they can make their own kind of clinical decisions to get to that final point yeah we were saying how like there's a v- big difference between uh kind of different loading loading different people in different ways and it's not a case of once they can do this exercise then they can do this exercise and then they can do that exercise like you kind of said and the way i find my practice works very well is when you when you understand the, 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 like you said, the movement pattern and the, the stresses that the tissue is going to go under, then from there, it's almost just about being creative and creating like an exercise that bridges the gap between something that's too easy and something that people will be used to, like a, uh, just changing some slight little position of the foot will increase the stress around the, the ankle ligaments or will increase the instability at the ankle so you can, you can work on the knee. Um, I think that's going to be that's going to be super important, and that's what I'm looking forward to most. Kind of watching your the, kind of the finished product. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to to learning and obviously learning a lot from you. Um, one of the things that I well, what do you think? Firstly, uh, important things. So, a life of education is really about um, helping personal trainers and helping yoga people and Pilates people understand rehab a little bit better. So, what would you uh, be telling them are essential things in taking a client through rehabilitation um i think i think it's really easy to get it right but it's also really easy to get it wrong and you can definitely overcomplicate things so i think my message to them would be um by the end of this course especially you'll get an understanding of what it is that you do can do right and then you just need to tailor that to the individual that's in front of you i think i think we i mean we had that great conversation about relative load and what relative load means so loading an 80 year old woman is going to be completely different from loading a 15 year old child so um i think it's really making sure that you tailor it to the person um but also that you know there's there's things that the body will do um that you can help and it's almost like guiding guiding the body in the right direction and i think you can you can disrupt the healing pattern really easily uh, and then that can offset people and then you kind of lose their confidence and their beliefs change um, and so it's really easy to get stuck on this downhill spiral with with patients and I think if you can kind of get them to buy into what you're doing and a big part of what we talk about on the course is education so educating your patient and talking to them about I'm doing this because this will lead to this um, we're not going to load your tissue because you're still in this phase of healing or we are going to load your tissue because actually evidence shows that it's really responds really well and and I think that's a really important thing and I think that's something that they'll be able to take away from from the uh, the online lectures
Um, you mentioned earlier a little bit about the psychosocial side of things. So just for people who don't know what that phrase is, how would you kind of explain that to begin with? Um, so the biopsychosocial model is something that's being, well, is is well adopted um, in sports medicine. And obviously it's looking at the biological side of things. So that that's kind of relating to anything to do with kind of tissue healing um, and physiological responses to an injury. Um, and this can be pre and post injury. The, uh, a lot of people use the biopsychosocial model kind of after injury to monitor the effects of an injury. But it can also be used to, to see how at risk people are um, and to put them into kind of those danger zone categories. So you've got the biological side of things relating to kind of the tissues the body the person as a whole and then you have the psychological which is obviously dealing with their mindset so in terms of beliefs um that's the biggest one for me is kind of what they preconceive the injury to be about or that injury to be about so a lot of people have this idea that um tendon injuries are really debilitating and you can't you're not supposed to load them and things like that and so we'll kind of debunk some of those myths throughout the series um and then also the social side of things so how it affects them from a day-to-day basis so is it affecting their lifestyle their earnings um, their social life friends families things like that Um, and i think we'll try where best to incorporate that into all of our case studies to kind of give people a better understanding of the biopsychosocial model but there's certainly loads of things out there kind of free resources on the internet that that allude to the biopsychosocial model all the time well just before we started the podcast we were talking about the effects of the biopsychosocial maybe you can elaborate a little bit on how that would affect yeah so um and we do this in the i believe it's the second session we talk about the effects of um achilles tendinopathy on a on a long distance runner and we we put them in the biopsychosocial model so we map them through each of those three sections and talk about how how that injury will affect each part so um so essentially again i'll go back to beliefs is a big one so we we have that that common thing that that people if they hurt their back they'll say something like oh i've slipped my disc um and they haven't really slipped their disc if anyone knows the anatomy of a disc it, it doesn't allow too much movement either way so there's all these kind of terminologies that people go to say like oh i've got my dad's ankles for example uh, you've got your own you haven't got your dad's um and it's kind of installing those beliefs in people to help them understand their pain a bit better um and so for me that's the key thing is the beliefs and i, I really have a strong interest in the in the psychological side of things because i think as a practitioner it's what you can really really affect especially with your body language the way you approach people but also assessing them as well because you can you can see the moment someone walks in the door how they're going to react if they've got their head down and they're really sullen then you know that you're going to have to work a little bit harder at that side of things whereas if they walk in quite jolly um then you think right and especially in children you kind of got to look at the um the iq so so their intelligence but also their emotional intelligence so their eq so um seeing how well they respond to emotions and how how kind of in touch with emotions they are can really be of benefit so yeah cool i mean um one of the things i find with with pain is uh people's words that you you kind of touched on it i I don't want to throw in a curse word here but when people come in and they say like you know i'm really i'm really screwed my shoulder is screwed i have to stop them and say are you sure like are you really sure it's screwed like because it looks like you've got full range you just have a little bit of an achy pain when you're say pushing it under a load so you know people come in they say oh my back screwed done like can't move and it's like well let's just wind it back a bit let's really make sure that we're using the right words here because 
there is people out there who are really screwed and they're the ones who are in wheelchairs and sort of, you know, at the early stage of a post-operation. I think when people use those words, and also when we were in university, actually, one of our lecturers mentioned uh, the language cues about you walk up to your friend who you know has a sore knee and you say, how's the knee? It's not how's your knee. It's how's the knee. Like it's a not associated part of you anymore because it's injured. Which I think when you're aware of those words and your language that you use, it, it, it can really reframe people's position on, okay, look, you're not that bad. Like, let's turn your head, let's turn your mentality around. Let's get you a bit more optimistic about this. You're not that bad. There's a lot of stuff you can do. Let's focus on what you can do, not what you can't do for now. Um, so it'll be good to see kind of where, with the whole pain, because one of your lectures is specifically on pain, isn't it? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So as I said, it's kind of that introduction to pain. And yeah. Kind of just only getting the tip of the iceberg in relation I, to it i love the whole idea i have my own theories about pain obviously none of them are scientific but what all just well <laughs> they're all personal like i oh i don't want to diverge into this topic too much but um on a personal level just experiencing uh, all degrees of pain i have a feeling that a lot of people are very fearful of their own pain and instead of experiencing it we like to before we approach any level of pain we like to medicate it straight away and i know a big lesson for me was to like actually go okay well let me let me see if i can feel this and i can see what's happening and why it's happening and if i can actually withstand it and let's see what happens and my personal experience remember none of this is scientific is just um i really think that your body protects itself to such a, a degree that it will not allow you to feel a level 10 of pain it will uh, release its own kind of like lovely like pain um neurotransmitters and chemicals so that you don't experience and feel all of that so that you can survive to a degree um that's my personal yeah well, i mean no one's gonna that. do you know caroline's story we, i think we spoke about it briefly yeah yeah you, you told so me yeah. pretty bad accident yeah however many years ago we can assume she was in a lot of pain so well, she's speaking do you from know, that position what do you know what's really interesting is when i actually had my like the accident i didn't feel any pain at all and that was very interesting because i was totally smashed up and a lot of the time in the hospital i would have to every every few hours you'd have obviously attached to a morphine drip and given copious amounts of pain medication and it really took me a lot of like courage to go well actually I'm okay right now I'm just gonna experience this and see how far I can take it and I feel from a personal level I was really afraid of that and I think uh, educating yourself about pain it can change your perception about it and can maybe yeah it's interesting I'm gonna for anybody listening about that. <laughs> no no I, I was just going to frame it for people anybody who doesn't know you just in summary two two and a half years ago yeah had a rock climbing accident and fell from seven meters broke both broke a lot of bones in your feet broke your hip broke your back pretty much laying there broken in a lot of pain so just for anybody who doesn't know what, what the what Caroline's story is but what's interesting is that I wasn't in pain so this is why it's so and obviously you can explain this to people yeah. a little bit and, more and we do touch on that in the, we relate it to a lot of different stories because there's a lot of it, lot, I mean um, I, I guarantee you that everyone out there has had tissue damage and not had associated pain with it at some mm. point and I mean a paper cut's a prime example you don't 
know you've got a paper cut until you see it um and we i think we go into detail on sunburn as well sunburn's one of those classic ones you you experience sunburn on the back so there's clear tissue damage and something's occurred that's changed the state of your normal tissue um but you don't experience that sunburn until you either lie down in bed at night or you go and have a shower and there's a different mechanical input there that then makes your body aware of this and we we talk about we touch on the pathways of pain and how the brain can decide and determine what it wants to experience Mm. um and how it can how it deems what's more important at that time and um potentially in your case your body decided it's not healthy for me to experience pain right now i need to survive and let's focus on that and there's loads of wartime stories of people um Mm -hmm. having limbs blown off unfortunately and not experiencing any pain because they they understand that there's this more important things so to put it and they need to yeah so it's it's really clever and and that's hopefully the biggest take-home message from that first lecture is is that pain is created by the by the brain um pain does not exist outside of the brain pain isn't an input to the body it's only an output from the brain um and hopefully that's the biggest take-home message and and even that message to patients can really help them understand pain as well Mm. um because i think the biggest issue with some of the patients is that they associate pain with um tissue damage and harm yeah massively and so making them understand that pain's protective so experiencing pain is good it's always it's never a bad thing and it's never i don't think you should ever make them feel like their pain isn't real um that can also be a very dangerous message their pain is always real um it's just not always associated with tissue damage and that's not necessarily a bad thing because pain can be created to protect you as well so it just makes you aware that either someone's pathologically in a in a state or they're protecting themselves and and that's where we can get into kind of the movement side of things and 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 push them into pain and hopefully again they'll get a better understanding of how we can work pain and work into painful areas to help decrease and desensitize the body yeah so that's a that's a really good analogy and a good segue the the sunburn analysis because i had an experience when i was working with the military guys where uh i was trying to find a way of the difference between tissue damage and pain and the brain realizing that the body is uh sensing pain and the difference between if we keep going you're going to cause more tissue damage and they used to feel a lot of pressure through their command chain of command that when they would have a sore back they'd go to the docks they tell the docks they're sore they get time off work and then the chain of command would make them like, okay, you got to stay in work. Like, I need these boxes moved. We need these these people driven across the country. Like, you're going to be the guy who drives. And the guys, the soldiers, to tell them, I can't. My back is sore. Like, you're, you're going to make it worse. And we get to the point where they'd go for a scan. And the scan would come back with a nice, intact spine. And there's no disc. There's no whatever. And they'd come to me going, like, Keith, I'm in pain. Like, the scan came back clear what can I do? Like, everybody thinks I'm making this up. And that's a really bad position for a soldier to be in. It looks like you're taking the easy option and you're, and you're, and you're just trying to get out of work. So I use the, the sunburn analogy that, look, th- there's nobody saying that you're making it up or it's in your head. That's what they were saying. And I think that language, again, is very important because what you're describing is it is in their head. But the term, it's in your head, indicates that they're fabricating it. Not that their brain is feeling it. So there's a real little kind of muddle up of those words that people say, the pain is in your head. The person thinks they're being accused of fabricating the pain. And the sunburn analogy that I would use with them, that I used with this one guy who came into me, and I could see he was a sergeant. He was getting pretty upset like about this situation. And he said, I told him, you have a shower every day. 
at a certain temperature and you go out that day and you get sunburned and you get back into the shower at the end of the day and it feels like the water is burning your skin but you know that from your every day that the, sh- that the water is not causing any tissue damage but the nerves in the area now are super sensitive and they're protecting your skin from any possible threat I said so when we're moving around in the gym and you're feeling pain we're not necessarily causing more tissue damage but we are triggering the nerves to tell the brain be careful and it's manifesting in, in the head as pain. Yeah, I think sometimes that, sorry to interrupt yeah, yeah. you, that has a lot to do with the state of your nervous system. So Absolutely. being in like... Stressed. High, yes, being super stressed. That's where that biopsychosocial model fits yeah. in as well with the other side of things. And, and we talk about, um, we take a great thing from David Butler in the course and he, he's really good at this and I really like his, his way of thinking, which is why used it in the course but he talks about the dangers and safety within you so um there's been things where even like the smell of coffee can help relax people but also at the same time that might make you stressed out if you don't like coffee and um, mm. so it's yeah it's really interesting and that also leads on to the whole scanning thing because that's kind of a, a big problem i think that we have nowadays with especially with high performance teams that have the money just to send someone off and scan it, it can work in completely the opposite way whereby someone comes in with hamstring soreness and again we'll talk about the levels of hamstring soreness and how it relates to tissue damage um, and they might get their hamstring scanned and and for anyone that's kind of worked in this environment they'll understand that, that these people are hypersensitive because there's a lot of money involved in it and, yeah. and pressure yeah and they want to protect themselves as well because they understand that you know a hamstring injury god like the reoccurrence rate's high and I can miss a lot of time if I don't do this right so Scanning can be really bad in that respect because if they've only got, um, say, for example, a type 0A or 0B, so your your typical DOMS, and they feel soreness and they've had a hamstring injury before, then all of a sudden they become in this protective state. You scan them and it shows some scar tissue or some residual damage based around something they've done in the past. And all of a sudden their pain increases and all of a sudden they become too protective. So scanning is definitely a big issue, I think. Um, I think we're starting to lean a bit too heavily on scanning as clinical diagnosis. And there's some situations where it's it's vital to scan, certainly. Um, but I think the ready, the readiness of it and the availability that we're having can be quite damaging. That's a good... That, so then how would you advise a PT or a, a yoga instructor or a Pilates instructor who has a patient present or a client presenting them with pain and a scan and either the scans like the scan is giving them information that says they're injured their, their disc is bulging or it's saying there's no injury like but i'm in pain like how does how does the, the how do you recognize that as a, as a pt who's not got a wealth of experience in injuries yeah well first of all obviously when that scan comes through always follow the advice of the doctor i think if if there is a clear injury and it's been caused acutely then treat it as appropriate um and as as told to so follow the guidelines but i think if they come in with a bit of soreness and they say should i go get a scan um again make sure you're doing everything within your remit so um just find out obviously what they've done it goes back to the relative load um say for example a nordic hamstring curl it might be very low load for you and it might be very high load for me and so therefore after that it's the same exercise yeah i'm probably going to experience pain so to speak or soreness the next day um and i think again it goes back to educating the patient and understanding what relative load is to them so how you load them is really important um, and if you educate them saying well you're going to be really sore tomorrow then they'll expect that and it won't come as a shock and 
you can educate them. But in terms of if they came to you with a scan that showed something pathological, then again, like that's a really tricky situation. That's where you need to kind of communicate with whoever had the scan or performed the scan or the doctor that referred um, just to get the full story. Um, just to stay, stay, stay safe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, like I have a good amount of experience, like not so much with the scan, because the scan is re- is obviously observed by the skilled, is it a radiologist or the MRI technician? I can't remember what the term, they, they write the report. And from the report, everybody kind of follows the, the, the lead. But some of the words they use are pretty confusing. Do you know, they're pretty tough and they use different words for the same thing sometimes. So I think um, when, from my perspective, my advice, if anyone wants my advice, would be, <laughs> to send a direct email to the physio find the doc find the info from the physio or the doctor and contact them and say look this person has come to me and uh we have this ongoing issue can you direct me as to what i what i should or shouldn't do um physios really appreciate that physios think okay well here's a standout person who who knows their remit and they really want to help and they go on that extra that extra bit for the client um, but I think what you said is important that you have to follow the chain of command above yeah and I think after the course as well we'll, we'll touch on musculoskeletal injuries and we'll give time frames behind or typical time frames again these all change relating on to the person and the circumstance so we'll give we'll give rough time frames of when things will be healed by and when we can start progressing our return to play or our exercises so from that respect I think I think you can you can still be educated enough to not have to lean on the people above you um, in respect to, right, I know that this tissue should be healed within the next week and we can then progress on to doing concentric eccentric so we can move from our isometrics to our concentric and eccentric exercises. And I think, again, the patient will tell you a lot. So um, just if it's symptom-led in response to pain and dysfunction, then um, it, the progression can be really simple as is do you get pain on an eccentric contraction then yes then maybe we'll just stay with isometrics for another day or so um so certainly lean on the people above you but at the same time build that confidence with your patient through education um through letting them know that you know you've experienced a grade two tear of your muscle fibers it's going to take this amount of time to heal this is our time frame this is what we're going to work towards but don't put too much emphasis and too much pressure on them following that because things do change yeah um so that i mean it's almost like we're, we're talking about just muscle tissue uh which i think is relatively straightforward like you said like some people will just heal by themselves you know they'll just get better uh, the high-end elite athlete needs a lot of care and attention if they're going to reach that high-end performance again but in relation to someone just kind of presenting with back pain do you know like everything hurts even when i'm not exercising i'm in pain getting in and out of the car is in pain like how does somebody how would you advise someone in that realm um who's gone to get a scan and or they're they're on the on the the tipping point of should i go get a scan or should i not like what does a pt or a yoga instructor or a pilates instructor what does, what advice do they give or what do the people who are listening who aren't in that profession they just wonder themselves should i go get a scan if my back is sore or can i can i exercise can i push through this or should i just you know should i pull my bootstraps up and get on with it yeah, without giving too many spoilers for the uh, for the course. Um, I think that yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think certainly. Like I think what what we'll do is educate people on pain and kind of 
and it goes back to that biopsychosocial model. So they could they could almost take a sit back and go, well, what's what's gone on when I've experienced this pain? What is it? Is it I've got a phone call from my mother-in-law? Um, has that all of a sudden am I now in pain? Because um, she could be the stressor, for example. Or is it that, you know, I've just got a really stressful email from work and all of a sudden I'm now in back pain? Um, so they can look at themselves. They can almost self-reflect on, on when their pain comes on. Um, they can also do things like, well, what have I done recently? Have I overloaded the tissue? Um, was there an acute point? So did it just gradually come on or was it, you know, I, I went to go pick something up and all of a sudden my, my back went into pain and spasm. Um, and I think, I think it's really important to get it checked out depending on the symptoms. If you're getting kind of referred pain, then I would always go and see someone. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's... That's a really hard one. And again, it it depends on the demographic of person you're talking about. Because if, if you scanned someone over the age of 30, for example, um, they're relatively going to have a fairly... Their back might be going through stages of degenerative process, but that might not mean that they have to be in pain. Um, but again, if they see that, then that might kind of go, well, oh, you know, my back's crumbling away. I've got bone on bone. All these common kind of languages that aren't really true. And then they start to build up their own belief around their pain. Um, and it's important to... I think, to sorry to interrupt you, early. belief and attachment to it. Because I think this is what I say a lot once people become attached to, oh, I'm injured, I have this, that they don't ever move beyond that. And they can become attached to that. And that in itself can can be a reason why it continues yeah, certainly. And I think I think we touch a lot on that. And that's where this course will be really helpful for people because it will be a, an education tool um, and something that they can pass on to their, their patients. And I mean, that's that's the, the whole thing is that I feel like the beliefs around certain injuries has just been kind of just, you know, it's been heightened so much that, that they're made out to be a lot worse than they potentially are. Um, yeah. And people, if they get those beliefs in their heads, then... Yeah, it can be really hard to bring them back from that. So it's a really important thing. I remember uh, being in hospital and a friend giving me several books. Uh, one of them was uh, You Are the Placebo. And I remember reading that and reading all of these stories about people who were either in uh, immense amount of pain and were given placebo drugs or vice versa, where they were normal and they were given uh, some particular medication or tool and then they were in a lot of pain and uh using those like little tricks to be able to to get in and out of pain um that was really interesting because then I started to use it myself to be able to modulate okay well am I really in pain what's going on etc etc so I think going back to the education part of it uh books like explain pain and evolve your brain and you are the placebo are really good avenues for people to help them if they're in pain understand their own pain um and then also also help their clients or their patients also understand their own pain and what their body's going through and maybe some things and tools that they can use to come out of that yeah definitely those just books. my tidbit yeah no those what what is what ones you said the you are the placebo that's a joe dispenza book yeah it's um, amazing to explain, we were uh, ex- you have yeah yeah pain. Expl- we it oh, yeah, i've got it on me today um explain pain yeah that's the um david butler and laura mosley book mm-hmm. um yeah, that, I think that's a great one. And as you said, touching on kind of the modulators of pain and how there's been some brilliant studies out there that have, I mean, that, uh, tricking the brain essentially is what they do. And, and I mean, associating an input with something auditory or something visual. Um, so playing a sound or or um, 
or you know looking at a different colored light there's there's been a lot of things around that and i know tasha stanton's played around with sound and back pain and how um you know you 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 play people a creaky door noise when they're having um, a pressure applied to their back and all of a sudden you know it heightens their their um their perception of what's going on so it's really interesting i think playing and around with some of those things smell as well that's I was gonna ask what kind of tricks did you do what was <laughs> it your little um well initially and this is going to sound really silly but initially in hospital my heart rate was whenever someone tried to move me um to move my leg or to move anything my heart rate would go, obviously you're strapped up to a million monitors so you can see everything um would just go through the roof and I remember, so some of my friends started reading to me and as soon as they'd read to me, like my heart rate would drop. I was in no pain and I'd fall asleep. And then I'd wake up, someone was trying to do something else and the same thing would happen. So that's something that I used initially uh, to help. And and that was at the very beginning stages. After that was things like being warm. When I was cold, everything hurt a lot more. And when I was warm, I was a lot nicer. Well in less pain so they sound really silly but um when you're in a place where you're in a hospital bed for the next three months and you can't do anything they make a huge difference to the quality of your life um and i'm sure for a lot of people out there it's can be really silly like i liked tea like peppermint tea and when i had that i was not in any pain there's some there's some really great new things coming out there to do with like hospital settings and and tricking the brain with with visual inputs um there's a new system out there called i think it's snow world or snow globe i'm not sure if you guys have heard about it but they're putting var headsets on kids with um with severe burns um and whilst the nurse is dressing the burns and the wounds they're um playing a game via the var which is uh, in a snow world snow-based world and the snowmen around and things and um and it's it's being shown to dramatically decrease the levels of pain that these children are experiencing. Why don't they do that with adults? I wish yeah. someone well, that's, that. and that's that's the thing right now. Given given the way we're moving in terms of technology, it's only going to be a matter of time before we start um, playing around with people's vision to mm-hmm. help address the symptoms. and And it kind of leads on to an area of research that that I'm doing at the moment that interested in in terms of tricking the brain and using visual inputs to change how people perceive what is going on. Um, so I think it's really interesting. It's something that will we'll just keep going further and forever i don't think we've expanded into that area fully yet what's the research that you're doing um yeah so i should introduce that so that's we're, we're looking at the effects of mirror box therapy on um on acute ankle sprains and what, what, what we're looking at is are we able to affect range of motion and pain levels um, and we're also at the same time doing a little test to see how their left and right discrimination so how good are they at identifying a left or right ankle um on somebody else or via a picture um, and we're looking at that and looking at the outcomes and we're still in the stage of kind of like data collection at the moment um, so yeah so what I mean what's the aim what are you trying to do why would you look at someone someone else's ankle so well mirror box therapy as you probably know working within the army has been used greatly with kind of amputees um, people with phantom limb pain and people with um, uh, chronic regional pain syndrome so um what we're looking at is can we affect people with, with acute injuries and there's not been too many studies done with mirror box therapy and acute injuries because um, essentially the symptoms are very similar in terms of pain and range of motion so what we're trying to do is is see that can we have an early effect on range of motion and can we restore um, that early on um, because if it's not really 
if it's not really affected or it's not rehabbed properly then people can obviously go into chronic states of pain but they can also get chronic ankle instability um so if we can work into those ranges early on and we can decrease the pain then then i think it will just enhance our rehabilitation process it's just another tool so just just touch on exactly what is mirror box therapy like why would you what, what why would you use that ever mm. so it kind of is what it says on the tin it's it's a mirror box and um so what the what we have our our participants doing is is putting their leg into the box their injured side into the into the box so then what they can do is they can lean and they'll look at the mirror and see their unaffected limb but it will be in line with their their affected limb so it will essentially look like they've got your injured limb yeah. is moving yeah. yeah so um so then what we'll do is we'll get them to move their uninjured limb whilst looking in the mirror so it looks like they're say for example my right side's my injured mm-hmm. side that will be in the box and I'll look in the mirror and I'll see my my left foot's the one that's actually moving but I'll look at the box and it'll look like my right foot is moving um and again it just tricks the pain uh, tricks the brain to to just show you know oh, I'm moving my ankle and I'm not in pain so hold on a second this can only be good um and as I said, we're still data collecting, but I think at the moment we're finding some pretty good results in terms of range of motion. We're able to decrease, uh, increase the amount of motion that we can get at the ankle um, in those chronic, or well, in the acute ankle sprains. So what would it look like? You would do a you would do a test on the injured side, check the range of movement, put them into the box, move the uninjured limb for a, an amount of time or, or patterns, and then retest the injured side having it done nothing yeah so the participant when they when they've decided to partake in the study come in and they do a um, a laterality test first of all so we've got an app where they see uh, 50 photos of a right left foot and they're kind of orientated funny in space so they can be twisted around you can be looking at from the bottom from the mm-hmm. top and you hands like yeah the, ha- the hand yeah. ones are funky but they're we really we hard. really yeah we really focus on the foot for this one because it's their injured limb and um and so what they do is they have two seconds to click either left or right and at the end it gives us a score of the accuracy and the speed between the left and right because what what they found in chronic patients is that they they find it really hard to distinguish the difference between left or right and i mean this can be as simple as they look at a magazine and they see just a leg or a foot in a in a shoe commercial or something and they can't tell if that's left or right because what they tend to do is focus in on the injury and the brain has a really hard time between distinguishing and um so what we're going to do is look at that in acute injuries and i don't expect to find anything um from just that. sorry to interrupt you is that because of like say neural um what do they call it smudging so that your brain's not yep. able to map the injured side as well because it's not moving it and it's not yeah exactly and we okay. talk about smudging and kind of how graded motor imagery works but yeah it really has a hard time of essentially it's slower processing down so if you put your right hand out or I look at your right hand, my brain goes, right, that's a right hand because I can see my right hand here. But someone who's in chronic pain, um, it takes them a little bit longer. So they put it out and their brain has to go through the process of putting limbs out there to see if it matches. Um, so so what's smudging? Maybe you can explain it a little bit better. Yeah. Um, again, it, it's just that process of the brain just takes a little bit longer to identify the limbs. And I mean, I'm no expert. And um, yeah, I don't really go into it too much in the course because I don't, properly know how to define it but in my head and the way that i would probably explain it is be that the um yeah your brain just takes a little bit longer at identifying the limbs because it goes through this process of mapping it against what you experience 
Um, Can you explain it? You, you, yeah, you might be able to explain it a bit better. Well, for me, I think uh, so. Obviously, in your brain, you have certain sections of your brain that uh, specifically, and when we say map, they almost are the say the sensory areas for the brain to perceive sensory um, input from, say, your hand, and then you've got areas that actually elicit movement or output from, say, your hand as well. And those areas, when you don't move them they're not mapped as well so imagine that we're looking at uh, Google Maps of Dubai and Google Maps hasn't put the satellite over certain areas and so those areas you go down that road and it's it's like there's no road there so it's smudged so the same thing happens to the brain when it's injured you don't use it as much it's the sensory definition is less uh, and its ability to coordinate movement and output is diminished so it's not as accurate and it's not as fast and because of that, we tend to phrase it as neural smudging. So that area becomes... It's just like when you say your right hand and your left hand, but you use your right hand a lot more, so it's mapped a lot better. And your left hand, you might use it less, so it's not as coordinated. If you try to write with it, you can't write as well or you can't catch a ball as well because it's, it's not as mapped as accurately as, say, your right hand. So that's how I would explain it. I don't know. I think that was explained a lot better than what I said. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I was going to take it right down to, to my experience of it as well. Like pushing up after what you said, the kind of s- the difference between when somebody rubs something sharp on your skin and then something soft, and can you tell exactly what that was? Mm. That's a sensory aspect yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, if you go back to the sensory and the motor, you've got obviously the frontal. Uh, cortex that does uh, the motor cortex that maps all of the the movement and the output um, but I think when you're talking about sensory stuff we call it graphesia where it's like say I was going to write the letter eight on my foot or on my hand can I do I know that that's a letter eight can I differentiate between a sharp and a soft object do I know that this is a spoon or a fork or things like that and the better able you are to decipher those things the better mapped um, those areas of your skin or ah yeah that comes from the brain or the what well, those receptors sending a signal to the brain and the brain identifying what it is so when you're talking about smudging in the ankle from an ankle injury it's that the brain can't really understand where the joint is it's not getting a clear delivery of signalings yeah so when when you look at like the GMI processes and uh, and kind of how you progress onto the next stage you kind of want it to be you want to be able to decide or decipher if it's left or right limb and you want to be able to do that within two seconds um, that's kind of how quickly your brain should work um, but yeah so what we're doing is we're looking at that uh, and again I don't because of the fact that they're all acute I don't think that they should be too much or there shouldn't be too much different or lag time between kind of deciding is that the findings that you found um so far we haven't i don't know we haven't statistically looked at that and as i said we're still data collecting so it's a bit harder there's been some occasions where people have been a bit more um or they've been quick on their their injured side and uninjured side but so far i don't think we're going to see a difference in that which is fine i think that might be a good thing it might indicate that they're not in chronic pain um which is good but uh yeah, so then we, we then get them in and we do a, a simple knee-to-wall assessment, so um, just to test range of dorsiflexion. Um, and again, this is prior to all of this, we've ensured that they can walk in, you know, they're weight-bearing, um, so they haven't had any surgery, they won't require surgery on their ankle. Um, and then what we do is they either go into the control first or the um, 
or the study first so they'll either be blinded whereby we do the the whole process but with a um a towel over the mirror box um so they'll either do that first or they'll do the actual intervention first whereby they they receive the full mirror box treatment um after each intervention we grab them out we we retest their range of motion retest their pain measures we just use a simple vas score for the um for the pain uh, and then they're off on their way so it's a nice quick study um and so far i think we're finding that it's it's it is increasing range of motion um and even if you do the blinded study and then go do range of motion you're not getting the same increase as you are with doing the mirror box because we were worried that obviously the more time you spent doing knee to wall the better you'll become at it but so far that's not the case um so yeah uh it'll be interesting to see when it all finishes up um so hopefully we'll have some some kind of good figures by the end of this month i believe yeah nice cool um so moving forward then um what where are you hoping to take your career and we kind of spoke that you've got an interest in pain and it's kind of like a little a little thing you want to explore further yeah so uh yeah it's still very new to me but um it's definitely something that i find interesting and i think that that's probably a good thing that i find it interesting and i think that now that i've identified that i i like pain um which might sound quite weird but <laughs> it's um it's yeah it kind of i think that's that's good enough for me to say right i'm going to follow that and and kind of get a little bit more involved in some of those things so certainly really new to it all but um but do have a keen interest in kind of talking about how 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 we can learn more about pain and bring it more into kind of the clinical setting um certainly okay cool Amazing. Oliver, thank you so much for coming on today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Look forward to seeing your course. Um, just do a quick run through. So the, the course is actually going to have an introduction to pain to begin with. Yeah, so will introduce pain and then what we'll do is we will go straight into uh, tendons. So we'll talk about the pathology of a tendon um, using examples, kind of your, your thought process behind that. And then we'll talk about ligaments. Um, again, going through the healing times and the grading systems uh, and then on to kind of the thought process behind the rehab uh, and then finish off with uh, muscles uh, following exactly the same process. So it should be quite structured in that respect that hopefully on each of the ones it follows the same kind of introduction, um, clinical presentations and then clinical thought process behind getting someone back. Awesome, look Amazing. forward to it. And Oliver, if people want to follow you, what? how can they do that? Yeah, I've got a nice a nice Twitter account, which I'm not too active on, but um, <laughs> don't mind being contacted via. So uh, that's just oliver.blankensop. Uh, that's my Twitter handle, yeah. So uh, you find me there. Amazing. Tweeting away, yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Bye.